Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the youngest child, the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem And all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying. A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. Refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of the Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Someone, I think it was Mark Twain, said, pray for your enemies. After all, you made them. We can tell a lot about a person by his or her friends and his or her enemies. And King Jesus has enemies. Those who hold him in contempt. Those who are hostile towards him. Before the age of two, there was an assassination attempt on his life. And repeated attempts will be made to destroy the king. And yet the Lord will repeatedly protect the king and care for the king. And Joseph was warned about the plot against Jesus in a dream in verse 12. And Matthew will describe Herod's attempt To destroy the child in verses 13 through 18. And with the death of Herod the Great, a new danger will come. From Archelaus, the son of Herod, and the ruler of Judea in verses 19 through 23. Herod's fear of the truth and his fight against the truth will not end well. It will end badly. Matthew will bring up this reoccurring theme throughout his gospel of hostility towards the king. 
And like I said, Herod's fear of the truth and his fight against the truth not only will end badly, but it will also end poorly for his offspring. Herod, like all predators, will use deception and depravity to further his ends. But in the end, his lifestyle will spell certain defeat. We begin with the reasons for the journey. Look at verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. The last part of that sentence should send chills up your spine. The reason for the journey includes fleeing the wrath of Herod and fulfilling the words of the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1. And so the Lord warns Joseph in a dream. And remember that a warning is a caution concerning an action. Oddly enough, throughout your life, God in his grace and his mercy will warn us of opposition. And God also warns us to be obedient when we're faced with danger. The angel tells Joseph specifically to flee to Egypt. The word flee comes from a root word, fugitivo. You know that word. We get the word fugitive from it. It's also used in the book of Philemon to describe the runaway slave. And when a person would run away in the ancient empire and they were slaves, when they would recover the slave, they would brand an F on their forehead. Clearly, the Lord could have preserved their life in Bethlehem. He could have teleported them to Egypt or anywhere on the earth for that matter. He could have stationed angels to protect the child. But the Lord warns Joseph in a dream. And as a family, they obey the Lord. It's interesting to me because Egypt's border is about 75 miles to the south of Bethlehem. Egypt is beyond Judah's border and Herod's jurisdiction. In the first century, after Cleopatra and Antony Octavian, who will become Augustus, will annex the entire province of Egypt. And Roman people are not allowed in Egypt unless they have the permission of the emperor. And so it will serve, oddly enough, as a safe haven. And again, Joseph may have used some of the gifts that he received from the wise men to finance the journey. And most important, if God commands you to or warns you to do something, the Lord will make a provision for you to accomplish that task. And I'm going to suggest to you that throughout your life, when there's been deep difficulty or profound problems or issues that you face, the Lord will invariably show up and he'll warn you. He'll say, that direction is not a good direction for you. That's a bad direction for you. How does the Lord speak to us? Well, God warns Joseph in a dream. 
Clearly, the Lord speaks to some of the Bible characters in dreams. He gives Daniel a dream. And of course, Joseph, the son of Jacob, when he is taken captive and and kidnapped and, and transported into Egypt, he too was a dreamer of dreams. But the Lord isn't limited to dreams. The Lord can speak by the word of God, by the Bible. In Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11, we discover that God speaks through his word. And sometimes God will speak through his messenger. For example, in Paul the Apostle, in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, when he was talking to the people at Ephesus, he said to them, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you, everyone, night and day, with tears, unquote. Sometimes the preacher can serve as a source of warning. When the preacher says, turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Don't continue that life of rebellion and disobedience. Often when we're going through the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or we're teaching through a particular book, there is this reoccurring theme and the reoccurring theme is a theme of warning to turn from sin and to turn from disobedience and to turn from rebellion. My friend Joel Rosenberg from this very pulpit, he said... We don't know when Jesus is coming. He could come back at any moment. And then then he he issued a warning. He said, I I just want to warn you that if you're contemplating doing something wicked or stupid, don't do it. There's warnings. Sometimes the Lord himself will warn you. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah... Being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. According to that statement in Hebrews, God showed up, warned Noah and said, the whole world is going to come under judgment and I need you to make sure that there is a way out. Jesus is that way out. God warns us and guides us. And we may disregard the warning or we can ignore the warning or we can rationalize the warning. Remember what a rationalization is. It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. And so you open up your Bible and you read about the warning. You come to church and you hear the warning. You're driving in your car and you're listening to the radio and you hear the warning. Multiple voices telling you over and over again, God loves you. Jesus loves you. You don't have to continue down that road of disobedience and rebellion. We may disregard, like I said, or ignore. We may pretend it's just a panic or a fear or voices. But if you're involved with someone or something that dishonors and displeases the Lord, there's a voice inside of you. There's a warning that comes to you. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1, the writer of Proverbs says, He who is often rebuked hardens his neck and will suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy, unquote, there are times. Has, did your mother or your father, did your grandmother or grandfather ever say to you, how many warnings do you need in order to get this right? At what point will you go, I think I've heard enough. Again, when you look at the end of the passage, 
For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Can you imagine dreaming a dream and an angel shows up and the angel warns you there are people who want to hurt your child? What could be more terrifying? Even our unbelieving friends, people who are skeptics and critics, people who don't even understand the difference between good and evil when you press them and you press them and you say, you don't believe in good and evil and right and wrong, but let me ask you something. Do you ever think it's a good idea to torture a child just for fun? Can you imagine the the person who says, well, I, I can see how that could be a good idea. What wicked person could come to that conclusion. Yesterday when I was driving up to Longmont, I've I've got my my radio tuned into a Christian station and I'm listening to John Stone Street talk about worldviews and all of a sudden an amber alert comes on the radio. This is an amber alert, but maybe some of you have heard of, of amber alerts. An amber alert comes on the radio and says, hey, there is a mother and, and she's driving a particular car and they give a description of the mother and they give a description of a three-year-old girl and a six-year-old girl with shoulder-length brown hair and brown eyes. And on the Amber Alert, it says the mother, even though she's the biological mother, has kidnapped her own children and she's a methamphetamine addict and the children are at risk. And, And won't you just pause? Won't you pause from what you're doing and help us find this child and protect this child? And most people, even wicked and unbelieving people, if you press them and you say, do you ever think it's a good idea to hurt children? People with half of a heart will say no. That's a bad idea to hurt children. Herod serves as Satan's surrogate. The essence of Herod's evil plan doesn't simply lie in his willingness to cause harm. We know that people can cause evil and suffering. And we know that sometimes that evil and suffering is unprovoked, making it all the more heinous. The evil against the child. The evil against Christ is ultimately directed against God. There's a reason why Herod wants to hurt the child. He's trying to undermine the plan of God and the purpose of God. He's trying to thwart the plan of God and the purpose of God. And if you've ever wondered why Satan would want to hurt you, it's because he wants to undermine the plan of God and the purpose of God. And oddly enough, when you are Satan's surrogate, the motive often makes little difference. We could appeal to the fact that Herod wants to kill the child because the wise men have already told him, where is he who is born the king of the Jews and he doesn't want his position usurped when nations go to war. Leaders and generals rarely tell the people in the trenches exactly what the strategies are. Herod is Satan's pawn. And that's the world we live in. We live in a world of predators and perverts. You know, it's sad that even in our own church, 
as you walk in our church and you go to the children's ministry, you'll notice that, that our, there's only one way into the children's ministry. That's by design. We want to protect your children. If you're wondering why there's restrooms over on the children's ministry side only for children, it's because we're trying to protect your children. If you're wondering why there are Jack and Jill restrooms in the children's ministry, it is so that your child, your child will never be left unattended ever. Because we live in a wicked and a broken world where children face danger from unwelcome criminal contact. And we're tasked with the protection of our children. And you're tasked with the protection of your children. And Joseph was tasked he could no longer postpone the conversation. He had to take the journey. He knew that the child that was entrusted to him was in danger and possible abuse. And I, I need you to think about this for, for just a moment because sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we have to take an unwanted and an unwelcome journey away from danger so that we can protect our children. And so it says in verse 14, when he arose, he took the, the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Joseph receives the dream and the instructions. His response is prompt. Perhaps he goes by night for added protection. And in verse 15, look what it says. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. The Bible will often speak of Egypt as a type, a picture, if you will, of the world. You'll remember that God allowed the children of Israel to go to Egypt. Jacob and his children were experiencing profound famine. There were social, cultural, economic circumstances that quite literally forced them into Egypt. And this family and offspring of Jacob grow and mature and they become a nation of some million plus people in Egypt. And 400 years go by. And the children of Israel will come out of Egypt and into the promised land. But also it becomes a type and a picture of the Christian who comes out of the world, born in sin, born in captivity. God raises up a person in order to bring about a liberation. As God had brought the people out of Israel, out of Egypt as his chosen nation, he will now bring his greater son, the Messiah, out of Egypt. And so the Lord brings his son up out of Egypt for liberation from slavery and opposition to sin. But there's a retaliation during the journey. Look again in verses 16 through 18. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. By the way, perverts and predators often are exceedingly angry when they're found out. So it shouldn't shock you or surprise you. 
He's exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and, and all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. What time was that, remember? The wise men had made their way to Jerusalem. They had made the statement, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? And I'm sure that Herod said, how long have you been following this star? Well, you know, the star appeared some 24 months ago. We left our journey a long time ago and we followed and we made the journey and we came to this place. And by the way, I'm going to be in Israel in the, in the next few days, in this upcoming week. And if you go to Jerusalem, the easiest way to return either east or west or north or south is from Jerusalem. And so the easiest way to go back to the east is through the eastern gate in Jerusalem. But the Magi never came back. And Herod believed that the wise men had tricked him, had pulled the wool over his eyes. What Herod didn't know was that God himself, God himself had intervened to warn the wise men to go in a different direction. They weren't simply trying to trick Herod. They were trying to obey God's warning and sometimes when you're trying to obey God's warning, it upsets your family and your friends. It upsets them that you would go to church. It upsets them that you would read your Bible. It upsets them that you would actually believe that the Bible is true. They think you've become a fanatic. But let me tell you something. The only real cure for fanaticism is a right relationship with God and Christ. The Holy Spirit in your life cures fanaticism. It doesn't create it. And in verse 17 it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, Great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Remember, remember that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And because he's writing to a Jewish audience, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. This prophecy is like so many in the Old Testament. It appears to have an immediate fulfillment and then a future fulfillment. Remember that Jeremiah prophesied prior to the Babylonian invasion. And some of you sat through those 51 chapters of Jeremiah, the longest book in the Old Testament. And week after week, Jeremiah warned the people, God's judgment is coming, God's judgment is coming, God's judgment is coming. And Jeremiah is prophesying prior to the Babylonian invasion. And when Nebuchadnezzar did invade Jerusalem, he deports the people. And the staging ground for the deportation is Ramah. This is where he drags the people and he produces the human caravans that are going to be taken back to Babylonian headquarters 
Some of you familiar with World War II remember that Hitler and the Nazis used train stations and railroad yards to deport millions of European Jews to their death camps. And if you could have been there in 1940 and 41 and 1942 and you go to the deportation stations you see the picture of mothers and fathers and children as children are torn from their families think about it you can see the picture the nazis are telling mothers and fathers to get into one car and they're telling children to get into another car and you can hear the anguish and the ache as women grieve over their fact terrified mothers, grief-stricken fathers watch as their children are ripped away from them. The security and the privacy and the stability all gone. Every Jew, every Jew in the first century would remember that Ramah was the place where our children were ripped from us. And they were enslaved and taken from us. Every Jew would have remembered that this was the place where Rachel, Jacob's wife, came to Bethlehem. And remember, she gave birth to two children, Joseph, who will go to Egypt and who will become the agent that God will use to deliver his people. But when they come to Bethlehem, Rachel, great with child, is getting ready to give birth. And as she gives birth... Benjamin is born and Rachel dies giving birth to the child. And so for Jacob, for Jacob, Bethlehem is the place where his beloved Rachel died in his arms. It was a place of tears and grief and death. And so Matthew, by the Holy Spirit, would remind us that Ramah once again would become a place of horror and torture, and murder, and slaughter. And Rachel would once again weep, but this time Rachel becomes a type of every single Israeli mother who's crying her eyes out because babies are being killed by the sword and babies are being smashed to pieces and babies are being ripped from their mother's arms and babies are being ripped from their mother's wombs. Because this predator, this person is going to bring about a holocaust, Herod's holocaust. And once again, Rachel is weeping for her children. And once again, the Jews are suffering outrageous persecutions. And the reason? Because one man wants control of his life. One man wants control of his kingdom. And the warning, of course, comes to each and every one of us when we, when we think about the things that we're willing to do and the things we're, we're not willing to do. And what are we willing to do if we think that our sovereignty over our own lives are at risk? One Bible teacher writes, No longer, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, but O little town of Bedlam, how deep we hear thee cry. Soldiers marching in the streets have replaced the shepherds running through the streets and 
piercing swords through hearts and decapitating children and you hear the screaming and you hear the lamenting. You see the blood flowing. You see the babies dying. And this is not a pretty picture. This is the picture that you rarely see at Christmas time. And you might think, wow, this is a bummer. What a bummer of a message. And it might seem that way until you realize that Satan's strategy has not gone away. He continues to hate you and to hate your children. One Bible teacher said, where Jesus went, death followed. And there's a certain truth to that. We're so used to seeing Bethlehem as the place of life and the place of love. It's the place where the Savior was born. And all of that is true. But it also becomes the place of hostility, contempt, derision, death. Later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus himself will say in verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those from his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And the Bible doesn't just simply invite you to bow your head and open up your heart and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. It does that, but it's more. The Bible understands that when you invite Jesus into your life, it is also an invitation of hostility and contempt and persecution. Because sometimes friends and family will walk away from you. They'll say, what, 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 what exactly have you done? You've become a Christian? You have identified with Jesus? You love Jesus? And and, and we thank God. We thank God. God, that there is hope and there's forgiveness and there's the promise of of eternal life. But sometimes we leave out the part about the pain and the division and the persecution because that's going to be sometimes a part of the narrative. And when you're serious about Jesus, guess what? The hostility will come because you will be seen as a traitor, no longer a part of Satan's kingdom and Satan's surrogate, the powers of hell will be brought to bear against you. And so few people think about Bethlehem as the place of death. It is the place of birth, but it's also the place of profound difficulty But here's the point. No matter how hostile the circumstances become, God is at work. God has a plan. God has a purpose. Look at the return journey. Look what it says in verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt 
Herod dies, by the way, in 4 BC. Scholars suggest that Jesus may have been born right around 7 BC or 6 BC. But we know from secular sources that Herod dies. John MacArthur writes, quote, When Herod was dead, the greatest immediate danger to Jesus was over. In his antiquities, Josephus reports that Herod, quote, died of this, ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery, unquote. Herod doesn't just die, he dies what looks like with Ebola-like symptoms. Fevers, putrefaction, liquefaction of his internal organs. Again, the angel of the Lord appears in a dream with divine instructions. God makes certain that his plans and his accomplishments are going to take place, particularly when the threat is eliminated. And in verse 20, it says, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Now, the angel of the Lord tells Joseph, this is interesting, to go to the land of Israel. But at this point, he doesn't specifically tell him to go to Nazareth. And I find that that's interesting. If you ever get the chance to go to Israel with me, let me describe the land to you just a little bit. Imagine a land that stretches from Pueblo to Fort Collins. And that's about 12 miles across in certain places and 30-something miles across in other places. The entire land of Israel is about the size of New Jersey. And so the Lord says, go, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. But it doesn't say where. There's a supernatural, divine instruction. But the Lord is also going to use common sense and circumstances to help Joseph and Mary make the decision about where to go. And this becomes an insight for each and every one of us. Does God always show up in a, in a dream and speak to us? It's pretty rare, actually. Will the Lord show up and speak to us by a Bible? I think that he does. Will the Lord show up and speak to us through perhaps his servant? I think that the answer is yes. Will the Lord show up and speak to us through the circumstances of our life? I think that the answer is yes. Because in verse 21, it says, Then he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. In verse 22, But when he heard, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of the Galilee. The Galilee was where Joseph and Mary come from. The Galilee was the place where their family and friends lived. The Galilee was their home. And Herod the Great had ten wives and several sons. And by the way, Herod wrote several wills in his lifetime. And in his fourth will, he named his son Antipater, who was named after his father, as the sole heir of the empire. And so 
In his fourth will, out of all of his children, he decides that Antipater will succeed him to the throne and take over his kingdom. But the young prince was hot to trot. He wanted to be the king. And so he decided he was going to poison the old man. But guess what? The the plot failed. Feroros, who was Herod's youngest brother, accidentally received the poison. He drank the poison by mistake. Herod imprisons Antipater and reports the assassination attempt to Caesar Augustus in about 5 BC. So when Herod the Great is receiving permission from the emperor, he executes his son. And as he's receiving permission and he executes his son, the wise men show up. And say, where is he who's born the king of the Jews? Herod becomes ill. And he draws up his fifth will. Herod's two oldest sons, the ones who were previously overlooked, Archelaus and Philip, are now named a part of the will. And soon after Joseph and Mary and Jesus left Bethlehem, Herod orders the execution of the children of Bethlehem. And that means he goes into those provinces and he kills every single child under the age of two. But make no mistake about it, more than children died that day. I want you to think about that. Do you think brothers and fathers died that day? Do you think fathers and brothers are going to just simply stand there while soldiers execute the children all of this is happening Herod's health continues to decline dramatically Herod draws up a new will his sixth will five days before he dies in it he names Archelaus king Antipas tetrarch of Galilee and and Perea and Philip tetrarch Tetrarch of a place called Galanitis, Trachonitis, Batania, and, and Panias. And those of you who aren't familiar with these particular areas, this occupies the land that goes all the way up to Lebanon, all the way down the Jordan Valley, all the way on the eastern side of the Jordan and the western side of the Jordan. Herod dies in the spring of 4 BC. The brothers contest the will. They appeal to Rome and to Caesar Augustus. And so when Archelaus becomes king, a riot breaks out in Jerusalem during the Passover. And Archelaus sends in troops and he kills 3,000 pilgrims who are there for the feast. While Archelaus is in Rome, another riot breaks out. This time during the feast of the Pentecost. Archelaus treats both Jew and Samaritan with utter contempt. Now this is ironic because Archelaus' mother is a Samaritan. And yet in some sort of self-loathing rage, he decides that he wants to kill both. And the Jews and the Samaritans do something that they rarely did or never did. Jew and Samaritan who have nothing to do with each other, unite together, form an entourage, go to Rome and beg Augustus to remove Archelaus from the throne. Archelaus is banished to a place called Vienne 
in modern Lyon, which is a part of France, where he will live out his life and die. But Joseph, Joseph, who's been tasked by the Lord to be the protector of the young child, understands just how dangerous things are. And so he decides to take his family to Nazareth. But God is going to use circumstance, common sense, divine direction, all of these things in order to make sure that Joseph and Mary and the child are going in the right direction. So it shouldn't surprise you that God will use all kinds of different ways in order to speak to you. And it says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Certainly Joseph and Mary prayed. They waited. They sought God's will. Common sense said, be careful. Faith said, wait for me, and I'll take you exactly where you need to go. And you've got to understand something, that Nazareth wasn't a driving force or a vital center for politics or economy or religion. And the word Nazareth literally means a sprout or a bean sprout. If you've ever gone to an Asian restaurant and gotten bean sprouts, and bean sprouts are those little shoots that come out from the bean. Nazareth means bean sprout town. What it really translates to is hick town. I mean, some people might say to you, where are you from? Littleton. Where's Littleton? Well, you know, in Littleton, there's over over a quarter of a million people. Littleton is no longer a little town. It's grown. Nazareth would have been nowheresville. Isaiah 11 verse 1 tells us that the Messiah would, be, would come forth as a root from the stem of Jesse. That word root, bean sprout. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Note, it's plural. There's no single verse in the Old Testament that says Jesus will be from Nazareth. Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. But there's a reoccurring theme using the word netzer, which means the branch or the shoot. The implication is that the prophet spoke of this low-lying branch, humble, fruitless, which all of a sudden will be filled with fruit. And so, several prophets apply the title branch or twig to Jesus. Isaiah 4, verse 2. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Just a couple of quick things. You should note that there are four dominant prophecies that are outlined from chapter 1, verse 23, to chapter 2, verse 18. Messiah is going to be born a virgin in verse chapter 1, verse 23. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, chapter 2, verse 6. He's going to live in Egypt, chapter 2, verse 15. His appearance is going to cause great sorrow and opposition. That's chapter 2, verse 18. And the prophecies start adding up and building up. And there are literally hundreds of prophecies 
surrounding this Messiah. Herod may have experienced some sort of relief that that he could eliminate the threats to his, his rule, but in the end, he's going to die a horrible, painful death. But Herod is still alive in this sense. We live in a broken world with perverts and predators who are willing to exploit your children and harm your children and destroy your children. This is why we have reoccurring themes in our church. We'll have a day of safety. We'll have an internet safety. We're we're looking for reasons to help you help your children. We have to begin to understand what the warning signs are and the physical signs and the behavioral signs. And I don't have time to go into all of those things, but I can make resource recommendations that are provided by law enforcement agencies and the FBI. We have to pick a time and we have to pick a place. And we have to have an honest conversation with our children. Because few things in life are more important than their safety. I do want to say one thing. Never, ever, ever, ever confront a child abuser with the child present. Never, ever, ever have a suspected abuser and a suspected abused child together because it can be overwhelming. Never ask a child about abuse in front of his or her suspected abuser. But understand something, that there are abusers. There are people who want to hurt children. Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 21 writes, Do not overcome evil. Or do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. The very fact that Paul says that means that it can be done. It makes perfect sense that Joseph and and Mary will later experience a kind of panic and meltdown when all of a sudden they're in Jerusalem and they leave. And remember, Jesus is nowhere to be found. And these haunting images And threats fill their heart with fear and dread. We have to be careful. We have to know where our children are. We have to know what they're doing and who they're doing it with. And so teach your children. Teach your children how to use a phone. Teach them to dial 911. Listen to your child. Listen to your child. Listen to your child when they tell you that someone's trying to hurt them. And talk to them. And sadly, I have to tell you, take photos of your children four times a year. At the beginning, in every season, winter, spring, summer, fall, both apostates and apostles will pursue Jesus. The one to discredit him, the other one to declare him Lord and King, But Herod's progeny continued to live. Julian the Apostate, Voltaire, Nietzsche, Sam Harris, Bart Ehrman. There's a long list of people who will tell you, Bible's not true. Jesus isn't Lord. But the Bible is true. Jesus is the Lord. And so what are our options? Well, we can do what Herod did. 
continue in the rebellion and remain ruined forever. Or we can return and surrender to the Savior. And for some of you, that's exactly what you need to do. Instead of living a life of contempt and hostility towards the Savior, now is the time to turn to him. Love him. Learn from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we know that we, again, live in a broken world. It seems awful that someone would try to hurt a child. But we know that these people exist. And Lord, we want so much to be men and women who love our children, who protect our children. And Lord, we also pray for these men and women who find themselves in this pattern of abuse, that, Lord, that they would understand that their contempt and hostility can be turned to courageous joy. Instead of emptiness, they can experience fullness. Instead of a reoccurring sense of guilt, they can experience forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray that each person would turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. That they would admit that Jesus is the Lord and that they're tired of running from him and that they want to run towards him and experience what it means to know him and love him and serve him. And again, Father, we pray that you would make us wise men and women as we have to make hard decisions on how best to protect our children. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.